Hello, everyone. Welcome. My name is Marilyn Shannon, and this is the Breaking Free Show. And I am still in Florida, sunny Florida. Looking forward to uh, going home very soon, hopefully, into North Carolina. But for the time being, I am still with my mother and doing just fine. I hope all of you are doing well and staying safe and, you know, doing your best. So I want to get on with the show, but I just want to remind you always that you are welcome to call in anytime you want when we get started, 919-518-9773, or you can come in on Skype as the mood just strikes you and you want to ask a question to our guest or a comment, please feel free. You can come in on computers, that's plural, then the number 2K voice, and also you can come in on our chat, just Put your name, whatever you like, under our video and join us there as well. Love to have you any way you can come in. And hi, Amnon. How are you? Hello, Marilyn. I'm fine. You look Good. fine. I am fine. I am doing Good. My hair is growing, as you can tell. Did you establish residency in Florida already? Uh, <laughs> not yet. I don't think my husband would like that very much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's looking forward to me being home. It was, it's, and I miss, you know, I miss my kids i miss my grandchildren last week i did a, a virtual um, scavenger hunt with two of my grandsons one is eight and one is four and it was hilarious <laughs> but you know you just try to do what you can to connect it'll be over before you can blink your eye yeah i hope so i'm looking forward to it so anyway all right y'all let's get on with our show because this is fun i want to introduce rachel to you hey rachel Hello, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. I'm so happy. This is going to be a great show. So tell everybody who Rachel is and what Rachel does. So my name is Rachel Christ. I am the Director of Education at the Salem Witch Museum, which as the name would indicate, is located in Salem, Massachusetts. Um, we are a history museum. We tell the story of the Salem witch trials. We also focus on the history of witch trials in a more broader sense. We talk about the European witch trials, the legacy of witch trials and witch hunts in the modern day. Uh, our mission is to be the voice of the innocent victims of witch hunts from 1692 to the present day. So is it wrong of me to ask you if you were if you were a witch in a past life or if you are a witch? Well, it's not wrong, but I will say it's probably the most common question I get in interviews. Um, and I will say that I have loved the um, fictional witch since I was a small child. So my mother always tells me I was destined for this particular career path. <laughs> I hear you. So, so in a history museum, and I, I have not been to the museum. So do you have exhibits? I mean, what is it like in there? So we're actually a very unusual museum, and that's got a lot to do with the nature of the Salem Witch Trials. There really were few artifacts left over from this particular event. This was a really short period of time, um, and there really weren't many things kept from it. So we aren't an artifact-based museum. Um, so instead, what we do is we tell the story of the Salem Witch Trials through tableaus and through narration. So the idea is to get visitors um, looking into the 17th century, looking into the big events that took place throughout the year 1692. We have two exhibits. The first takes place in a large auditorium space where you see these um, separate tableaus and you hear the story of the, the 1692 Salem Witch Trials um, chronologically. So you hear uh, what happened to the the very beginning of the year all the way through to the end. Um, 
And then visitors go into a second presentation, which is a staff guided tour where we talk about the word which, how that idea has evolved over time. And we end by talking about what the word, what the term witch hunt means, both in historical and contemporary examples. Well, that's a good place to start. Um, And you, but I want to just tell everybody, you are also in school for your master's, right? Yes, I am currently working on a master's, uh, a master of history and museum studies um, at Tufts University. And my focus, surprise, surprise, is witch trials history. (laughs) What is it about, first of all, what is it about witch trial that was so fascinating to you that that that's become your life's mission, goal? Well, witch trials are something that, and especially you hear this story all the time in Salem, Uh, people kind of wander into the tourism industry or they wander into this subject matter and you know they they kind of stumble upon it and then it's it just sucks you in and you end up devoting your entire life to it and you you know you hear that story again and again the, some of the people who work at our museum have been working there for 20 30 40 years you know this is one of those things that once you're in it it's really hard to walk away and i think there are a lot of reasons for it i think that in part, the word witch just has so many different meanings. It's such a big word and it means so much to different people. So, you know, studying the history of witch trials is just absolutely fascinating for many different reasons. It's fascinating because it's got this element of the fantastical. You know, this is a crime that you could not commit. You know, this is an imaginary crime, the crime of witchcraft, because what people were being prosecuted for was flying through the air and causing hailstorms and being able to look at someone and spread disease. You know, this is not something anyone was physically capable of doing. So the fact that thousands of people were executed for that is absolutely fascinating. How did that happen? What caused something like that to just grip Um, society for hundreds of years, this kind of mass um, panic that takes over for about 300 years. So you've got that part of the history. But then on top of that, you also have this image of a witch has just evolved since this time. And you see it going through, you know, fairy tales, you see this kind of witch figure in Hansel and Gretel and these um, stories were brought up with as, as children. And then you get to the 20th century and you start to see witches in television and movies and books and comic books. And, you know, now we've got this whole generation of people who are raised just loving witches, loving what they represent. They're almost like superheroes. They're these super women who can, you know, change time and change, you know, fight bad guys and save the day and they're magical. So it's all of these different kind of pieces that come together in one topic. And it's just, you can spend your entire life studying it and you'll never know a fraction of what there is to know about it. Right. Or a piece of it. And, you know, exactly. you'll never know. So where exactly. did the word, where'd the word come from? Well, it's a, uh, that's a complicated question. So, <laughs> um, people yeah, I got some time. <laughs> people have different answers for it. Some people say, um, which, well, so you also have to unpack that, which comes from, there are different, um, when the early modern witch trials are happening, you've got Um, pretty much all of Europe is involved in this. So the word witch is obviously different in each language. Um, So you've got, um, you know, the word witch in German is hex, 
Hexen, the word which in France is sorcier, and each one has slightly different meanings to it. It's got a lot to do with um, different translations over time, especially when Latin is being translated. Um, one of the things I think is very interesting is if you start to look at um, the way the Bible was translated, there's this famous um, line in Exodus, thou shall not suffer a witch to live. Now the word witch actually gets put into that translation later. It's not the original word. Originally, the word in that line is thou shall not suffer essentially a poisoner to live. Um, and later on, as the Bible gets translated, the word witch gets put in as it's, you know, the term evolves in Latin and English. Um, so it, and that reflects the way that people are thinking about um, supernatural powers. They're thinking about this as a crime against other people. It's very reflective of its time. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So when we go back to the, it's all fascinating and we're going to probably sum it up throughout our talk. But when we start with the witch trials, how did it start? Mm, that's another Why? very complicated question. Oh, I, I guarantee you, I, I, what's an easy question to ask? Yeah, I know. Right? That's, <laughs> that's very true. I think we started with what is my name? That was the easy. Yeah, that was easy. <laughs> but so again, like, like everything else in this history, um, there's a lot of different pieces that come together to start a witch trial. So the biggest thing to remember is that a witch, as you know, the criminal um, definition, to be accused of the crime of witchcraft, that is something that gets invented around the 15th century. So before that time, you don't really see people being accused of witchcraft. You don't see people being convicted for witchcraft. You see people being accused and convicted for other things, for using magic for evil. You know, people believe in magic during this time. If you are um, trying to heal your sick child with magic, that's okay. If you're trying to, you know, put a curse on your neighbor because you had a fight with them, that's not okay. And you see traces of this in legal history for um, thousands of years. You can trace it back to, uh, to Rome, to Babylon. You know, people are, there are certain restrictions of what you can and cannot do with magic. Um, then you also see as time goes on and as um, Christianity rises and you start to see Europe becoming Christianized, you start to see uh, people being accused of being heretics being a heretic during this time is not following orthodoxy. So in this particular example, not following Christian orthodoxy. So people are being accused of heresy who are um, kind of do, putting their own spin on Christianity. You see groups like the Cathars who get in trouble because they're practicing Christianity in the way they think is fit, but that is contradictory to the way the Pope thinks is fit. So people are being accused of this crime of heresy. And essentially, as time goes on, um, heresy gets merged with this crime of um, using magic to hurt people, which is also combined with this thought that heretics are doing um, what is the worst possible thing you could be doing. So heretics are always accused of, or not always, but are often accused of um, doing exactly the opposite of um, normal social behavior. So having orgies, eating babies, um, you know, just doing the, you know, take, you know, normal behavior and flip it on, you know, in reverse. That's what 
um, is often imposed on these heretical groups because it makes them seem like monsters. You know, it makes them seem like the absolute antithesis of good. So this, um, this idea of kind of placing these different evil behaviors also get mixed in. And now you've got this idea of perhaps there's this group of people who are not only um, practicing magic, but they're worshiping the devil and they're doing all of these other terrible things. And that's when you get the crime of witchcraft. So you need a lot of things to kind of happen in sequence and it takes a very long time to get there. But like I said, this all really starts in the 1400s, in the 15th century. And that's when you start to get witch trials. So it is the, um, is the facts, what are the facts, the historical facts that you have within the museum and things that you're studying, is that to do, denote that there is magic or is there, is there any thread that says, oh yeah, we found some magic? What do you mean? Can you, I mean like, um, you know, kind of things that witches do, you know, they create this potion, they create that. I mean, is there, is there anything that says any of that is possible? So people definitely practiced magic, you know, can they summon hailstorms and fly? Probably not. Unless we, until we have a major scientific breakthrough that tells us people can fly through the sky. We're going to go with that is physically impossible, but did People actually try to, you know, create love potions to harm your neighbor, things like that. Yes, people were practicing magic. And you see different layers of magic. There's um, what is called high magic, which is elite magic. So you need to be um, a very educated person in order to practice high magic. So that's something like alchemy. That's something like um, astrology. These are things that you would pay somebody to come into a court and do for a king, you know, you want to turn a substance into gold. This is um, elite magic, but then you've got low magic. And that is um, also sometimes called folk magic. And this is, you know, protecting your home, using a spell to keep evil spirits out of your home, um, trying to cure somebody who's ill by using charms and incantations. This is something that, or fortune telling, people read palms, people had different kinds of ways of trying to see the future, see who they would marry, things like that. People did this. It was widespread, you know, it's it wasn't something that could just be stopped you know even though it was you weren't supposed to be doing it it was technically illegal but you couldn't just really ban it no more than you could ban picking four leaf clovers today or wearing you know a um a horseshoe necklace you know these are things there we might call them superstitions that it's not quite the right word because it was um more meaningful then but this is something people did all the time and we have plenty of evidence to note that they did but were was anybody actually trying to contact the devil and make a pact with the devil you know that's much harder to prove you know you you see little glimpses every once in a while of people who are getting involved in demonology sometimes but the vast majority of people who were accused of the crime of witchcraft were completely innocent. They weren't trying to make a pact with the devil. They weren't trying to sell their soul to the devil. These are just innocent people who are victims of the circumstance. Gotcha. So the purpose behind your work is what? So the big thing that we need to remember when we're learning about witch trials is, again, this is an imaginary crime that's brought against innocent people. 
And the thing that's really important to remember about witch trials is witch trials tend to happen in a very specific environment. It tends to be times when people are very afraid when something is really going wrong around you, whatever that might be. Maybe there's a food shortage. Maybe there's war. Maybe there's an economic crisis. You know, something bad, unexplainably bad is happening to you. And there's just building, building, building tension. And the reaction during this time was to look around you and say, hmm, you know, this could be the work of an evil person who sold their soul to the devil who's hiding in our community. And then what you do is you start thinking about the people you think are the most likely to sell their soul to the devil. Now, that tends to be people you don't like, you know, which makes sense. You know, somebody who sells their soul to the devil, the worst thing that could happen that you could do is somebody that you don't trust. So in reality, what that meant was this tended to be people who were poor people who didn't fit into social norms, women who argued with their husbands, argued with their neighbors, who were outspoken, women who were living alone, who didn't have a man living in their homestead with them or were economically independent. These are the people who are most often the victims of a witch hunt. So it's really all about scapegoating. So finding somebody who is innocent and putting blame onto them for something you know they don't do, finding an innocent person and blaming them. Um, so that's the nature of a witch trial. And it's this is a generalization. You obviously you see exceptions to this rule, but overwhelmingly, this is um, this kind of formula for behavior for a witch trial and for a witch hunt. And I think that that is really the mission of our museum. That's the mission of witch trials historians is to get people to really understand why you would accuse someone of something that is so fantastical, so unbelievable, but that you would really go to a level where you would execute innocent people for it. So that's that's what keeps us going, and that's why this history is so important. Yeah, I think it's important to talk about modern day as well, because you mm -hmm. mentioned that um, early on. So I think you know, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that, because obviously we very often will hear it's a witch hunt. Yes. You know, with whatever it is. And I, you know, I don't necessarily want to get into politics, but, you know, it, it is, or the news, but it is there. And it's regardless of your belief. And I think it's important that we at least clear the air. Yeah. So um, the way that our museum has talked about witch hunts, and we've been doing this since 1999, this, this exhibit that focuses on this specifically has existed since the 90s. And the way that we talk about it is through this formula, which is fear plus a trigger equals a scapegoat. And that's exactly, you know, if we take it in the context of the witch trials, that's what we just talked about. When you're very afraid, when there's a lot of tension, when you're um, just terrified, plus something bad happens. Hold on, just, I want to ask you a question. So when you're afraid, who create, so is it the person who is afraid? that goes after somebody calling it or is it the where does the word which from who does the word witch hunt come from and whose fear so it usually you usually don't hear something referred to as a witch hunt until years later it's very unusual to hear a witch hunt named as a witch hunt while it's happening maybe a little bit less so in contemporary society just because we're talking about the word um but it the thing is is it's hard to identify a witch hunt when it's happening because there's, 
you're so biased at the time. It's hard to look at something clearly while it's happening. But the the fear when we talk about fear, we're talking about group fear. We're talking about a stress that's being put on. I mean, it can be an individual, it can be a group of individuals, but uh, and I'll I'll explain it with examples in a moment, which I think makes it a little bit clearer. But it's this fear that's building, building, building on you, on your friends, on your neighbors, and then something happens, something terrible happens, and that's when you start amongst yourselves saying, maybe it was this, maybe it was that, you know, you're looking for something to alleviate just the, the terrible circumstances because you, there's nothing you can actually do. So you look for a way to manage your fear. And that's really the biggest part of a witch hunt is you're channeling that fear against a group that's unrelated, that's innocent, that's illogically becoming the scapegoat, the object. So it's, of the a defense. it's a defense. It's a def it's a coping mechanism. Coping that's mechanism. that's really the word I'm in searching for. You know, it's a coping mechanism. It's a way to handle what's going on around you. So the most famous 20th century example of this, or at least the one that you hear most commonly, is the McCarthy hearings in the 1950s. That example is so famous, mostly because, or at least I would say, um, you know, we talk about commonly today because of Arthur Miller's play The Crucible, um, because Arthur Miller made such a clear connection between which trials in that formula of behavior and the contemporary McCarthy hearings. Um, and um, so that's, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought for a second, but that's, uh, that's really the example that you hear most commonly identified with this pattern of behavior. You see this growing fear in the United States because the Cold War is happening, we're worried, we're watching the uh, communist expansion in the East. There's this threat of nuclear war. People are afraid. You know, these aren't, this is the entirety of America. We're really afraid that we're going to go to war, that there's going to be nuclear war, and this is very frightening. And then this man, Joseph McCarthy, makes a speech, and he's in Wheeling, West Virginia in 1950. He stands up with a piece of paper in his hand, and he claims that he has a list of dozens, if not thousands, of communist spies who have infiltrated the Department of State. Now, retrospectively, we know Joseph McCarthy did not have a list. He was never able to actually pull out a piece of paper with confirmed communist spies. And that's not to say that there weren't communist spies in the US. There were. We know there were spies for the Soviet Union. However, to say that there were thousands of people in the Department of State was fear-mongering. And what it did was it capitalized on this growing fear and it led, it allowed people to channel this fear in a productive way. Because now we have this leader, we have Joseph McCarthy, who can uh, identify these communists for us and solve it. And it's gonna be okay, everything's gonna be all right. But that doesn't actually happen, right? Joseph McCarthy starts naming people who are innocent or who may have some sort of affiliation to the Communist Party. Maybe they went to a rally in college. Maybe they read a book at one point and you know, so are somehow affiliated with the Communist Party. That doesn't mean they were spies. That doesn't mean they were trying to take down the United States government from within. We have a freedom of speech in this country. People were allowed to express their opinions. And Joseph McCarthy just completely capitalized on that fear and shut it down and just um, led to this very dark spiral where thousands of people are branded as spies, thousands of people are blacklisted, 
people ended up in jail, people ended up being unable to work or provide for themselves for years and years to come. Something that isn't talked about as often is during this time, it's called the Red Scare, but you also see something called the Lavender Scare happening, which was people who were identified to be gay or lesbian and working for the uh, United States government were branded as communists. They were brought in because of their sexual orientation and written off as communists and blacklisted. So it shows how people start to go after those who are different in some way, those who don't quite fit in. And this is a way to channel your fear in a way that makes you feel like you're doing something. But you're not. Innocent people are being harmed. Um, the other common um, examples, the ones that we talk about in our museum, is the internment of Japanese Americans in the 1940s. Uh, this is the same kind of behavior, right? We're at war, World War II is happening, uh, Pearl Harbor happens. That sparks this enormous fear, and rightly so. People are terrified. There's been a threat on our soil. But the reaction to that is to, in turn, thousands of Japanese Americans who were no way identified as spies or traitors. These people are forcibly removed from their homes. They're placed into internment camps where they live for years in basically prisons for no reason, you know, and it's the same kind of behavior. You're just putting your own fear onto this group of innocent people in the hope that something will change. That's extremely fascinating. Yes. I mean, and, and, uh, yeah, and it really is. So hold on a minute. I just want to ask everybody to be, you know, if you'd like to call in, you can, 919-518-9773. If you have a comment, a question, whatever you like, you want to engage, you know, you have a thought, or you can come in on Skype. That's computers. That's plural. Then the number 2K voice. You'll come in on uh, voice, not video. So you won't be seen. So it doesn't matter. Or you can join us in our chat, put your name, nickname, whatever you like under the uh, video and join us in there as well and ask questions. So, you know, I, I want to talk about, you know, this, the kind of, um, the magic, the allure of being a witch too. Yeah. But I, we can't leave the witch hunt because we're, we face that today. And again, I don't, you know, we don't need to get into politics but we have that notion today about the news you know that the news is i mean there's a witch hunt or there's a this and there's a that so do you have any thoughts about that so um for the past couple of years we started this in 2017 our museum has been asking people to really take a critical eye to the term witch hunt take a critical eye to this formula of behavior that we have put out um, and we've been doing this postcard project where we offer blank postcards to the public. You can fill it out with this formula and you fill out what you think fits with this formula of behavior, either in a contemporary example or a historical example. And if you send it back to us or you um, fill out the same form on our website, it all gets posted online. So as a 21st century museum, it's not our job to preach about 21st century politics. And in fact, it's inappropriate. It violates a lot of the codes of a museum. And it really, it puts people on the defensive. We're not here to preach to you that your values or your decisions or your whatever is wrong. We're here to explain historical phenomena and to ask you to think about that in the context of today. That's the job of a museum. 
So this is our way of asking people to engage with this topic and to think about it. And like I said, we're posting all of the responses online. So you can go to our website, which is SalemWitchMuseum.com, and you can go to this page and see these responses. They've been going up for, like I said, several years now. And you, if you feel passionately about it on one way or not, on one side or another or whatever, you can post your That's own great. thoughts there. That's great. People want to talk. Exactly. And that this is a forum for people to engage with this on a deeper level, to think about it and to really get their voices heard. And I think that it's one of those kind of old education mottos is once you've written something down, you're forced to think about it on a deeper level. You're engaging with it on a deeper level than what tends to just come out of our mouths. Right. So this is a way for people to take a moment, stop and think about it. And think about it in the context of seeing what other people think too. Well, it's 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 a good way to acknowledge it, right? So, are you noticing any themes with this process that you've done? I mean, what are you noticing? So, I mean, people definitely view um, contemporary events in different ways, and like I said, it's not our job to comment on that. We're offering this as a space for people to work this out and think about it on their own. And if we start interjecting, um, you know, our analysis of it, that, that defeats the purpose, right? So we've chosen to remain neutral and to ask people to work on this on their own. I will say that the past couple of years with the word witch hunt being so uh, prevalent in the news, you definitely see a lot of politics being put out um, you see scapegoat being used in a variety of different ways. And like I said, it's not our job to unpack that. It's our job to let people voice this together and let people work through this and see what other people are saying as well. I've got something. Yes, What'd you say? I said, I've got something. What? It yeah. would be really nice in 10, 20, 30 years to see the person who's going to take your place at the museum. Mm-hmm. You're talking about McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And maybe in a bunch of years ahead, somebody would say, and the same thing happened back in 2017, 18, 19 with our President Trump, and they were doing this and they were doing and it's the same pattern. Maybe, maybe not. But it's I I I applaud the fact that you are staying uh neutral on it and you give people enough information to think for themselves exactly which is very yeah, very right. good you can't yeah you, and, it's and a I'm museum it's up. not a yeah. think tank right exactly and you can't well you could but it's good not to say oh don't do this or don't say that because exactly. people will learn anything right. exactly you tell them not to you're giving them the tools to make their decision or to think about this on their own which i think is brilliant exactly you know if it, it's the you need to have a space of your own. It it doesn't help if you come in with your own thoughts and someone immediately says, no, that's wrong. That's stupid. You're stupid. That just, that's not productive. That's not a productive conversation. And that makes that person angry. You know, this is a space to talk about it because healing doesn't happen and resolutions don't happen when anger is present. You have to look at it logically and you have to talk about it as a group because those thoughts and those opinions are coming from somewhere. You have to understand why they feel that way, where that is coming from, and that's when a productive conversation can start. So preaching at someone, really, it's not helpful 
it doesn't help facilitate learning. Absolutely. I mean, the, the damage can be irrevocable. Yeah. And there are people today who still feel that Joseph McCarthy was a wonderful guy and is completely innocent and we shouldn't lie about him in our museum, which someone said to me when I gave my first tour many years ago. But, and that's, that's an opinion. That's okay. It's the thing that we need to remember is that it's easier to talk about something retrospectively than it is to talk about it now. It's easier to look back now and say, this is what happened with Joseph McCarthy. We know he didn't have a list of communist spies. So all the events that follow afterwards happened this way. You know, it's, it's easy for me to talk about it living in 2020. Talking about something that happened in 2017 or 2018 or 2019, we're still living in it. We're still existing in it. People are still being affected by it right now. So it's much harder to talk about it logically and rationally and to see all sides of the story. So that's, in some ways, historians have it easy because we get to go in 10, 20, 30, 100 years later and say, okay, this is what happened. We know all the pieces now. But, you know, dealing with it in the modern day, dealing with it as it happens is a much, much different story. Right, right. Because, I mean, if you see, if, if you see elements, similar elements rise up again, Mm -hmm. And you are that person, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, who felt one way before and then the same feeling or memory kind of gets tapped into again. Well, here it comes again. Exactly. So exactly. it's really, it's um, an interesting, and, and then this is stuff I've never really thought about. And it's, it's kind of worthy to note that um, this is the conclusion to every witch trials history. And, you know, I say every, that may be a little bit of an oversimplification, but every major book that is, uh, talks about the European witch trials almost always ends with, and this is the formula for a witch hunt. And the, they may not say formula, but, you know, this is a pattern. You see it again and again. You know, Joseph McCarthy is often brought up. Sometimes people bring up the satanic panic that happened in America in the 1980s. Um, you know, this is something that you just see happen over and over again in different time periods, in different geographic regions. We call it something different, but it's the same kind of natural human instinct. People fear what is unlike themselves. And during times of great fear, it's easy to place blame on those groups that are different instead of facing what's actually going on head on. Yeah, so is it's that also, it's also easier to, while you're living through it, to lie, to incite, yep. to, if you're coming years later, there's already a lot of these facts that were established. Exactly. And were looked over again and again. And somebody who wants to, like if somebody says, that McCarthy was a great guy. I mean, he's probably going to be attacked from all over. Maybe I say, what, don't you read? Don't you see what's go what, what happened? It's very, I mean, for you to stand there and to talk about it to other people about what he did, you have some facts in your hand. I mean, actual facts. Yeah. You cannot lie. If you lie, you're going to be very transparent right away that, oh, this person is not, no, forget it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Good point, Amnon. Yeah. So when when you go back to the to the actual witch trials, mm 
Mm-hmm. Who were those? Who were those women? So the women who were accused. Yeah. So in let's talk about Salem specifically. Mm-hmm. So the first three people to be accused of witchcraft during the Salem witch trials fit this, um, you know, kind of character archetypal scapegoat perfectly. So these three women are Tichaba, who is a slave, um, Sarah Good, who is a beggar, who's known for being um, argumentative. She was known to go house to house begging. And if you didn't give her as much as she felt she should be given, she would mutter, she would curse, she might even swear at you. And then Sarah Osborne, who had been ill for some time and hadn't been to church. And then on top of that, had also married one of her um, indentured servants, which is a you know big no-no during this time. So that's a social taboo. So these three people being named as witches makes perfect sense. There are all these people that are in the community who don't fit in, who seem like likely candidates to have sold your soul to the devil. In the particular case of the Salem witch trials, as time goes on and um, circumstances start to escalate, and this tends to be the case in chain reaction witch hunts, you see more and more people accused who don't necessarily fit this same archetype. But the people who are being accused tend to be people who have either had, um, you know, uh, family feuds going back with their accusers for sometimes generations, people who um, have done something to someone at some time that caused a fight or caused, you know, anger between the neighbors. Rebecca Nurse, who's this famously incredibly pious woman, who is this God-fearing Christian woman, she had had this fight with one of her neighbors years before the Salem witch trials, where a pig got into her farm and she went over and she screamed at her neighbor. This gets brought up during the witch trials and they say, and then the, the neighbor gets sick later and they say, well, it's obviously because she came over and yelled at him. She cursed him. You know, this is how witch trials tend to play out. And you see this frequently, people who, you know, have a reason to suspect each other. Why women are, why are women witches and men are um, something else? Well, men during this time were also witches. So men were accused of witchcraft during the Salem witch trials, five men were hanged. So this is one of those common misconceptions about witch trials is that only women were executed. However, like, you know, many other pieces of this witch stereotype, there's a reason why we think women when we think witchcraft. And that again has to do with the nature of a stereotype of the um, scapegoat. Um, Women were the most likely to be accused of witchcraft. If we take the example of the entire witch trials period, um, you see approximately between 40 to 45,000 people being executed for witchcraft. About 80% of those people are women. So um, it has a lot to do with the nature of a scapegoat. The people you find the most uncomfortable in your community are the people who don't fit social norms. So a woman who has yelled at anybody, you know, a woman who's argumentative, a woman who is transient, who's a beggar going house to house. I mean, how many times you know. has somebody said, oh, you're like a witch? You're acting like a witch. Yep, and that's one of those things that every time I hear that, I have to re- just shove all of my thoughts down <laughs> and move on because nobody wants to hear that rant randomly in the middle of a conversation. But you hear it today, you know, a woman who is being cranky, a woman who is... What would you say? What What do you want to say when you hear that? Well, I want to say that, um, you know, that's a very derogatory thing to say to a woman. And I mean, the word witch has really been taken back 
in the 20th century, which is fascinating, which is a great segue into the evolving image of a witch. But, yeah. um, and you ha that has a lot to do with the women's movement and the women's uh, spirituality movement that takes place in the 60s primarily. Um, once you start to see Wicca emerging in the United States, once you start to see spiritual feminism, people who are practicing these neo-pagan religions, suddenly people are talking about witchcraft as this spiritual term that is this symbol for patriarchy and this symbol for the oppression of women, which is a really powerful metaphor. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times you see these kind of religious groups basing it on a skewed version of history, not necessarily the most accurate depiction of history, but the basis of taking the term witch and using it as a way to represent the the way women have been mistreated throughout history is a perfect metaphor and is a wonderful, um, a very evocative term. Mm -hmm. So you start to see like today, which is a term that's used in feminism all the time. You see this very frequently now, which I think is fantastic. It's really awesome to watch. Um, and you also see, there's a lot of other pieces that go into this evolving image in the 20th century. Um, one of my main arguments is I think the Wizard of Oz does a huge amount to change our image of the witch. The what Wizard of Oz. Bewitched, the mm -hmm. show. What yep, about the and Bewitched. So, just like do her nose. Yep. So the Wizard of Oz is considered to be America's first fairy tale. And this is where you start to see good witches emerging for the first time. You start to see Glinda, who um, in the movie is this over the top. She looks like a fairy. She's bright pink. She's wearing sparkles. She's got a crown. She travels by bubble. You know, what little girl doesn't want to be that? You know, that really starts to change the way we're starting to talk about witches. And then you get to the uh, the 60s and you have Samantha Stevens, who is this, um, she's the all-American woman, right? She's beautiful. She's a housewife. She's perfect. And the fun plot twist is she's also a witch. But this is where you start to see witches becoming almost like superheroes because she's this beautiful woman that has all supernatural powers at her disposal. You know, she can make Queen Elizabeth come back to life and she can transport you um, to Egypt in a second or Paris in a second. She can clean the house with the twitch of her nose. It's this, you know, perfect, fantastic woman. And then you start to see continuing on, you get, by the time you get to the 90s, this is all over media. You know, these good witches, you've got Charmed and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Sabrina the Teenaged Witch. And it's just, it's everywhere. Rachel, what was a pivotal moment or, or something pivotal that actually took it from one way to the other? So like, I created that. So it's, it's like anything else. It's hard to say, you know, it's hard to say exactly. And it, it, most likely is a combination of different things. It's like when we're unpacking the stereotype of a witch with her pointed hat and her broomstick. People always want really nice, clean answers to why does she have a broomstick? Why does she have a pointed hat? And the answer is it's a combination of a lot of different folklore. It's a combination of many, many different stories that all come together. And in our cultural memory, we select this one dominant image. I would say that the change to this good white, good witch stereotype in the um, 20th century, the big turning moments are the Wizard of Oz and Bewitched. And then the 1990s kind of um, third wave feminist movement where you start to see girl power be huge, 
girl power translate into beautiful young witch seamlessly. So it's this mixture. And then you've also got the spiritual feminists who are coming in, taking back this term as a symbolic um, way of showing how far women have come. You know, it's this, um, I don't want to say perfect storm is the wrong word, but it's this perfect moment where from the 60s to the 90s, suddenly witches become no longer exclusively a derogatory term for women. Suddenly, it's actually the goal for a woman. You want to be a witch. Every you know right. girl growing up in the 90s wanted to be Hermione Granger or wanted to be, you know, Sabrina the Teenaged Witch. You know, it, it flips. Right. Uh, uh, Chris has a question on here, which I want to ask you on the chat. But I just want to comment that I don't, I even want to be a witch. Yeah, I, I do too. <laughs> conjure up magic, good magic. Like I want to create like, you know, good magic. And I yeah. don't mean just go to this, you know, take a spoon and do this. I mean, I want to create goodness. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I mean, and I, and I, and I've heard people say, you know, today that they, they're a witch. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, they, they, they're witchy. Okay. Here's Chris. She said, I saw a PBS documentary a while ago about the Salem witch trials. It, uh, uh, it spoke about the theory that a common grain fungus, you know about this? Yep. Responsible <laughs> for the terrible events. Can you talk about it? Yep. So what you're talking about is ergot theory. Um, this is a theory that was proposed in the 1970s. The idea is that this fungus that grows on rye or wheat, which is called ergot, um, when you ingest it, essentially people will oftentimes have um, seizure-like symptoms, psychotropic effects, a lot of the things that would um, describe the behavior of the afflicted girls. People will have similar symptoms to like you're going on an LSD trip. Sometimes you'll hallucinate, you'll see things. So this was proposed in the 70s by a young woman who I believe was actually working on her bachelor's degree. So she was writing, she wrote a paper proposing perhaps the affliction had happened because people ingested ergot. Now that theory was debunked immediately, like within weeks was debunked. Um, it's a great theory. It would be really nice if we had this neat scientific explanation that it was just a medical issue that couldn't be helped and that's why this happened. But it really doesn't make sense if we unpack what's actually going on in Salem. If it had been ergot, for one thing, everybody in the family is eating the same bread. It doesn't make sense that it would just be these certain people from family to family. And some people say that um, certain, um, certain I don't remember the exact scientific explanation, but it's something to do with your stomach. Some people absorb ergot differently than others, and that could explain it. But you also see the afflicted girls turning on their symptoms and turning off their symptoms when you get into the middle of the witch trials. So they're falling into fits when they need to fall into fits. And again, I'm talking about when we're at the heart of the witch trials, when people are starting to hang, people can fall into fits on demand. 
And that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense if it's a medical explanation. You also see people from across Essex County starting to feel afflictions. So people in Salem, people in Andover, people in Ipswich, people in Boston. Aragot wouldn't have been all across Massachusetts Bay, all across Essex County. So this theory really does not make sense in the context of Salem. However, it has become the most popular theory you see it in documentaries all the time. You see it in television shows all the time. This is the the pop culture theory, if you will. And I think it's because it's so easy. It's so easy to understand. And it doesn't challenge us to think about witch hunts. It doesn't challenge us to think about psychologically what's going on when you're thinking about a witch hunt. Kind of makes this an easily digestible event where these were just silly Puritans living in the 17th century who didn't have medicine yet, and that's why this happens. And it really, it oversimplifies a really complex and important event. Interesting. Good answer. Okay, so um, before we go on, just tell everybody about some of the things you're doing now because of being more online so they can take advantage of it from the museum? Yeah, so we're doing our best to translate translate our museum format online. As I said, it's been quite difficult for us because we don't, we're not an artifact-based museum. So you see a lot of museums doing these incredible virtual tours, which we just don't have the ability to do. However, we have a whole host of different um, learning tools available. So um, we've been doing a weekly uh, live stream on our Facebook page, which is just the Salem Witch Museum on Facebook. Um, so every Sunday at one o'clock, I go on and do a live stream talk about something relating to witch trials history and relating to all of witch trials history. So we've done a wide variety of topics. We talked about the history of magic. We talked about the evolving image of a witch. We've talked about the European witch trials. We've talked about women's life in colonial America. We talked about Matthew Hopkins, the witch finder general of England last week. So it's been a really fun um, kind of loose way to talk to um, a wider audience. Um, we are also have an online sites tour, which is um, beautifully researched. It's our education department has worked extremely hard on this. Most um, importantly, my our assistant education director, Jill Christensen, has done a phenomenal job working on this um, this tour. So basically, you can go on and see different areas in Essex County that relate to the Salem witch trials. So you'll see them as pictured today. So what's standing there today and how that area relates to 1692. So that's been really interesting and it's a really great way to learn more about the period. Um, and then we're also working on all kinds of educational content. Hopefully within the next week or two, I'm gonna have a selection of at-home teacher resources. So I'm writing curriculum for people to um, teach uh, the Crucible at home teach different levels of reading about the Salem Witch Trials at home because I know a lot of people are trying to still homeschool. So um, the best way to keep an eye on these different developments as we keep coming out with more content is to follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and on Facebook. And then our website, as I said, is SalemWitchMuseum.com. That's great. That's a wonderful plug. Thank you. Okay, so <laughs> that's a great plug. Okay, I want I want to ask you about your backdrop, but just hold on a second. Amnon, do you have my books? Got to get a little plug in for myself. Of course. <laughs> um, 
right? Okay, so my books in just one afternoon, all on Amazon in just one afternoon, listening to the hearts of men. If you like stories, which I do, real, real, raw and real stories where people really open up and share their authentic selves, their things that they never even said to anybody else, you're gonna find them in this book, in these books. In just one afternoon, listening to the hearts of men, then twins, then millennials, and soon, 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 people impacted by opioid addiction, then black fathers, and we'll go on from there. But they are really great stories. And they really, you know, get to the heart of who they are. So um, all on Amazon, ebook uh, e and paperback. Now, is there any significance in the final moments that we have about your backdrop? <laughs> no, it's just a, uh, a nice witchy backdrop. <laughs> what makes it witchy to you? Because it's certainly witchy to me. Well, I mean, that's a great question because we tend to have this witch aesthetic today, these kind of, you know, sun, moons. Um, I think that's honestly a whole other topic, but that's more based in our occult history as time goes on. But we love a good, you know, witchy aesthetic. Yeah, I love <laughs> it. I, love, I mean, I just love it. And I would like to talk about that, that part of the culture, you know, the, the magic. I'd love to talk about the moon and the stars and what all that means. So we're going to have you come back again. Okay. okay. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. So can you give us a little hors d'oeuvre of that? So, so yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, this is all going into the, um, the kind of spiritual end of witchcraft, which um, connects to occult history and connects to magic history which we kind of very briefly touched upon, but it's its its own separate oh, whole other topic. But um, it has a lot to do with, let's see, how do we describe magic in one sentence or less? But um, magic- well, you have a, a minute or two, so go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I guess just like the, mo the briefest way I can put it is magic is this, kind of word of mouth lore that is it it can't be defined by science but it's a way of understanding the world around us that has been passed down from generation to generation so it's this other way of unpacking the natural world around us it doesn't have anything to do with flying on broomsticks it doesn't have anything to do with um you know making a rabbit come out of a hat it's this kind of deeper more spiritual history that has its own very long complex history and is related to the history of witchcraft, but really is a topic in and of itself. Like, okay, so I, that magic I can believe in. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so, right, so give me, give me that, give me a piece of magic. What would be a piece of magic? So, I mean, magic is really all about, and when I say magic, I mean, if we're talking about what, um, you know, spiritual groups would say today, magic is all about changing your own subconscious. So it's about um, changing your behavior in a way that will bring positivity into your life. So that may be using specific colors that trigger unconscious reactions in you that may be seeing certain symbols that have been passed down for generations and have been shown to produce different psychological effects or, you know, subconscious effects. It really has a lot to do with the subconscious and with a way of just channeling our behavior in a way that brings positivity to your world. See, I think. You know, when I walk on 
a ground and the door opens up and I don't have to touch it, mm-hmm. to me, that's magic. If I walk somewhere and a, and, a, and a door opens up, that's magic to me. To yeah. me, this is, to, this is magic. When I take my hand, right, and I go like this, where is all that stuff coming from that's going <laughs> in my phone? Yeah. That's magic. To me, what we're doing is magic, right? Yeah. But I, but, and the spiritual, how you, how you can feel, how you can change how you feel mm-hmm. from having an experience, yeah. from understanding something is magic. Yeah. And I mean, it's different from person to person. So, you know, your definition of magic is no more, you know, invalid than mine. You know, it's just, it's one of those things that, and that's again, why it's more on the spirituality spectrum, because it's whatever works for you as a person, you know, and that's why everybody has their own version. You know, it's, it's something that works for you. And if it works, it works. Well, and that's what makes it magic. Exactly. I mean, magic, I don't think it necessarily i don't know that much about what you might say mm-hmm. but i would say that that's what makes it magic magic cannot be one thing exactly or it would be exactly. magic exactly right? exactly so i am delighted that we had this opportunity with you yes. you are just so special and you are just a wealth of knowledge mm-hmm. and i'm just so happy you came here and brought it to us and i would love to have you come back again and talk about this part absolutely absolutely yeah. Yeah, I'd love to talk about the moon, the stars. (laughs) Perfect. Okay, so we're going to have you come back again and do that. Great. So I really appreciate it. And any final word before we end our show today? I'd just say thank you for having me. I'm so glad I had the opportunity to um, come and do this. And if anybody's interested in very specific pieces of witch trials history, definitely come check out our live stream. It happens Sundays at 1 o'clock. Perfect. And for everybody out there, I really appreciate you being here today and participating in our show because, you know, we each and every week we bring you delightful, fantastic, magical people that are here to help us learn, experience, you know, empower us to make, you know, good choices. And just, you know, it's one thing, you don't have to agree to everything, but it's really great to have the knowledge so that you can make a good choice for yourself. So thank you all for being here today. Stay safe. Rachel, you're an angel. I love having (laughs) you here. And we're going to have you come back again really soon. Okay. Thank you. Uh, And Amnon, thank you for the show today. Sure. I appreciate it so much. And everybody out there, stay safe. And we'll see you soon. Bye.